Hey there, I'm Ed Ronco, and this is the Up North Lowdown from Interlochen Public Radio. A little later in the podcast, we'll learn about efforts to regulate tiny pieces of plastic that are almost everywhere we look, from oceans to our bodies. And I learn a new word. Nurdles. Sorry, nurdles. <laughs> Funny word for kind of a scary thing. Listen for that story in just a few minutes. But first, let's talk about winter. Last week in northern Michigan, it was 50 degrees. This week, we got some heavy, wet snow. I had the great privilege of sliding off the road on the way to work. It has been, though, a warm winter overall. And that is noteworthy because winter sports and activities bring in billions of dollars to Michigan's economy every year. This year's warmer weather has been tough for businesses and events in northern Michigan. IPR climate reporter Izzy Ross takes us to one of the businesses trying to cope. Hi. Come on in. It's around 8 a.m. on an early February morning at Mount Holiday, a small ski lodge in Traverse City. It's quiet inside the rustic hall overlooking the slopes. Executive Director Jim Pearson warns me not to be scared if I see a chipmunk running around. I'm trying to chase him out all since I got here. He's a loose little guy. <laughs> no we walk over to the window that looks out on the slopes. Snow is still clinging to some of the hills, surrounded by streaks of brown earth. On this day, highs are supposed to reach around 50 degrees. It used to be we would use um, the snow guns to add to what Mother Nature gave us, and now it's like the complete opposite, where we have to rely more on the man-made snow. So obviously that's a lot of ground to cover, you know. It's been a little very uh, challenging. Warmer winters have prevented Mount Holiday from operating over Christmas break for five out of the last six years due to poor snow conditions. That week used to be a big moneymaker. This year, Pearson says they've talked about shutting down for the season. We've had those discussions. <laughs> um, I've not given up yet. <sighs> One of the challenges, and we'll go this way, is we try to preserve what snow we had. So for, in some cases, that's easier to do than others. So this is usually what we would see in late April. Outside, he points to uneven snow cover on the hills. Now they do more tubing, which requires less snow. And they're hoping colder weather will come to let the snow guns do their work. They use around 800 gallons of water per minute when they're all firing. And when it's cold enough, Mount Holiday has crews operating them in shifts, sometimes 24 hours a day, trying to keep snow on the ground. Pearson says larger ski resorts with better equipment can keep their guns going and stay open through the warm spells. But Mount Holiday doesn't have that luxury. We put a pause on the, the skiing of that hill, trying to preserve it until, well, we hoped to, to, <laughs> cold temperatures were going to come this week and they didn't come until, until next week now. It's been a bad winter all around. Iconic sled dog races like the UP200 and Tequamanon have been canceled, and the state shut down fishing for sturgeon on Black Lake. Winters in northern Michigan and in the upper Midwest in general are warming and becoming shorter due to climate change. Meteorologist Lauren Casey works for the nonprofit Climate Central. To understand the difference between weather and climate, Casey says we can think of weather as news and climate as history. Attribution science helps determine the role of climate change in making weather events more frequent and intense, including temperatures. I was a broadcast meteorologist 
before moving to Climate Central two years ago. And that would be kind of the narrative, like you can't tie one specific event to climate change. That has all changed with the evolution of attribution science. And it continues to get more advanced, like, every day. <laughs> um, so now we can correlate certain events and the impact that climate change has had on it. Her organization has a climate shift index, which shows how much climate change influences temperatures on a given day. In Traverse City, on the day I talked to Jim Pearson at Mount Holiday, the index showed that climate change has made those warmer temperatures three times more likely. Winter recreation brings in billions of dollars to Michigan's economy each year. Michigan has the second most ski areas in the country. In 2020, the Great Lakes Business Network estimated that the economic impact of winter activities was around $3 billion. So it is unfortunate for a lot of those businesses that do rely on the winter season and those activities. And obviously, that takes a big hit. Leah Robinson is with the Michigan Chamber of Commerce. But our businesses are very resilient and have learned over the years that relying on one specific season or activity not necessarily the best way to go about things. As some businesses grapple with what to do, the state is trying to shore up the damage from the warm weather. They even sent out an email offering ideas for other activities, shore fishing, stargazing, birding, a cold water plunge in the East Grand Traverse Bay. Back at Mount Holiday, Pearson says they're continuing to shift their focus as well. Ropes courses, frisbee golf, maybe using the chairlift in the summertime to bring people up and down, fall color tours. So anything that we can add that brings people out here to enjoy, I mean, we have 45 acres of land and we're connected to about another 100 and 140 that East Bay Township acquired. So there's trails, there's hiking, there's biking, there's activities that we can provide. And so we're gonna try and do all those things. All that, he says, is part of leaning on the other seasons instead of just hoping for good winters ahead. IPR climate reporter Izzy Ross. Her reporting comes to us through a partnership with Grist. Last June, during a guest lecture event featuring an Enbridge Energy spokesman, a scuffle broke out between the North Central Michigan College staff and a group of protesters. The college's president, David Finley, was involved, and that prompted the faculty to request an investigation. IPR's Michael Livingston got a look at the report. Videos from the altercation show the two groups scuffling with a banner that read Enbridge out, no line five, before the protesters were pushed out of the room. According to records obtained by IPR through the Freedom of Information Act, investigators found little wrongdoing on the part of NCMC staff members at the event. After interviews with audience members, staff, and protesters, investigators concluded that the staff acted out of concern for the audience and that no First Amendment violations took place. NCMC President David Finley says he doesn't want the college to shy away from important discussions. Uh, However, uh, we do want to provide the best, safest, unbiased environment in which to do so. The inquiry by Varnum LLC cost the university over $66,000. That story came from IPR's Michael Livingston. You can read much more detail and the report itself, as well as the bills for how much it cost, on our website, iprnews.org. There's a link with the post for this episode of the Up North Lowdown. We'll be right back. This is my voice. 
it can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on the Black experience. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts. Saginaw Bay in Lake Huron is a premier spot for catching walleye. It's why ice fishing is really popular there in the winter. But the Great Lakes are wild, dangerous, and unpredictable, especially when no ice is safe ice. The snowmobile started sinking, so I jumped off my snowmobile into the cold water. And I've always been taught you go through the ice out there, it's a death sentence. You know what I mean? Chances are you're not going to make it. Friendship, peer pressure, and staring death in the eyes. Next time on Points North. Welcome back to the Up North Lowdown. I'm Ed Ronco. Microplastics are in everything, really. Our water, our food web, and yes, our bodies. That sounds a little alarming, doesn't it? Michigan has no set plan to address microplastics in our environment, but that could soon change. IPR environment reporter Ellie Katz is with us now to talk about all of this. Hey, Ellie. Hi, Ed. Microplastic makes sense, I guess, when I hear it, when I say it. What are we actually talking about, though, when we say microplastic? It's a good question. So we're talking about a few different things. We, we've got microplastic, which are these pieces of plastic that are smaller than five millimeters. So that's about the size of a pencil eraser. Mm. Then you've got nanoplastic, which is even tinier. These are the size of a grain of rice or smaller. And and these are kind of the scary ones because they're small enough to permeate membranes. Membranes like cells, intestinal lining. What, kind, what are we talking about? Precisely. Okay. Small enough to get into your bloodstream, those kinds of things. Huh. Within that, you've got primary microplastic. So these are plastics that start off really small, like nurdles. Sorry, nurdles? <laughs> Funny word for kind of a scary thing. Okay. So nurdles are these tiny plastic pellets that are kind of the precursor to almost any plastic product you could think about. Mm. So they're processed and made into plastic bottles, sunglasses, artificial Christmas trees. Anything that's plastic probably started as a nurdle. Then you've got secondary microplastics, which break down from any number of different plastics, like water bottles, grocery bags, cigarette butts, construction foam is a big problem, certain paints, tires... The list goes on, but these bigger pieces of plastic over time break down into microplastic. Just about everywhere we look for it, we find it. You know, it's found in the deep ocean. It's found near the top of Mount Everest. There's microplastic everywhere. There's this package of bills being drafted to address some of these problems. What do those bills say? Right. So there's five bills. They're still in the draft and review phase, so they could change. So these have not been introduced in the legislature yet. Correct. As they are right now, the big highlights are that the bills would require EGLE, which is the state environmental regulatory agency, to develop a statewide strategy for microplastics. So that's monitoring and water testing programs, but also regulation that would keep, you know, a closer eye on industrial discharge of microplastics like those nurdles that we talked about. And then there's also a bill in there that would target certain sources of microplastic, like washing machines. So... One of the bills would require mesh filters on all washing machines sold for residential use in Michigan after a certain date. And that's because so many of our fabrics are synthetic these days and they shed plastic in the laundry and that enters waterways through wastewater. So when I go hiking out on a trail in my 
technical gear from some fancy outdoor retailer, I might be spreading microplastics? You could be. Huh. Likely when you're washing your clothes in the washing machine. So we know microplastics are here. Um, We know that there are efforts now to sort of tighten up or establish, really, some regulations around them. But what have we done so far? Anything? A little bit. So there's the Federal Microbead-Free Waters Act of 2015 that's administered by the FDA. And that's prohibited the use and manufacture of these little things called microbeads, which you might have remembered seeing in toothpaste or cosmetics. Yeah, like those exfoliating soaps and exactly. toothpastes with those little like light blue, I don't know what they were, flavor <laughs> things or something in there. Right. So the federal government prohibited the manufacture of those in rinse-off cosmetics and over-the-counter drugs in 2015. You know, critics say it's a good start, but it doesn't really go far enough. It only addresses microbeads, and microbeads are only one source of microplastic pollution. Then there was a microbeads bill introduced in the state legislature in 2022, but that stalled. So this package, the idea is that it would build on both of those and then go even further. Proponents like Art Hirsch, who is an activist with the Michigan Microplastics Coalition and helped draft this bill, say it would make Michigan a leader in our region. I'm guessing, knowing how state legislatures tend to work in this country, that California is probably the strictest on this. Correct. Yes. California is actually the only state in the country so far to have a statewide monitoring program. You know, there's piecemeal efforts elsewhere, including in the Great Lakes region, but there's no coordinated statewide or binational efforts with Canada. So we've talked about how microplastics are everywhere. You said, you know, they're in the oceans. They're on top of Mount Everest. That alarms me. But the thing that really stands out to me is, you know, the idea that they're in our bodies. What do we know about the health effects of microplastics? Very little. Mm. That's mainly because they we just haven't had a long time to study them. Um, but we've found them in lung tissue, in placenta. Uh, we know that they can travel through the bloodstream, like mm. we mentioned earlier. But we still don't know the effects of that plastic accumulating inside of our bodies. There's been some research on the effects of that plastic accumulation in ecosystems. Um, You know, some studies have shown that microplastics are affecting photosynthetic rates in algae. They're affecting reproduction rates in certain invertebrates. They're causing a thinning of eggshells in fish. But the widespread effects in humans really aren't well understood yet. Well, Ellie Katz, you have startled me into uh, caring about <laughs> microplastics, but I'm very glad you did. Thank you. Thanks, Ed. Ellie Katz is our environment reporter here at Interlock and Public Radio. You can read more about microplastics, including details on the five bills that she talked about on our website, iprnews.org. Michigan has a presidential primary on February 27th, and our friends at Michigan Public looked at some key issues facing all of us here in the mitten. Here's one that resonates really strongly up north. Housing. The shortage of it has plagued this region over the past decade. So what can a president do? The Michigan Municipal League's Melissa Milton-Pong says leadership is needed at the federal level for more skilled job training, greater access to lumber, even more standardized zoning. But topping her list of what the federal government could do is financing for new home construction. If we were to reduce the cost of interest for both home buyers as well as those who are building housing for others to rent, it would increase the attainability of housing across the board. You can hear that whole series from Michigan Public's Steve Carmody on our website, iprnews.org. It's called Primary Concerns. Now, let's look at what else made news this week. 
A 63-year-old Frankfurt man accused of illegally redirecting the mouth of the Platte River at the Sleeping Bear Dunes National Lakeshore was found guilty in federal court this week. Andrew Blair Howard was charged in May with misdemeanor tampering and vandalism. That is punishable by up to six months in jail, a $5,000 fine, five years of probation, and restitution. The U.S. Attorney's Office says Howard used a shovel to dig a trench at the mouth of the Platte, then stacked rocks to divert the river's flow. Within a few days, the altered flow created a new river channel that grew to be approximately 200 feet wide. This week marked the one-year anniversary of the mass shooting at Michigan State University when a gunman entered campus, killing three students and injuring five other people. The university canceled class on February 13th and held remembrances. MSU plans to create a permanent campus memorial. Back in the day, when I was a student there, I had classes in Berkey Hall. That's the building where the shooting began. And so the events of that day hit me pretty hard. A lot of other people as well. The State News, MSU's campus newspaper, has done some incredible work talking about the full impact of the shooting beyond the statistics and the actual events of the day, but the impact it's had on campus in the last year. You can see their reporting at statenews.com. New gun laws passed last year in Lansing just took effect this week. They require safe storage of guns and universal background checks. There's also Michigan's new red flag law, which allows courts to temporarily seize firearms from those deemed a threat to themselves or others. A Republican state lawmaker lost his office staff and was stripped of his committee assignments for sharing a racist social media post. State Representative Josh Shriver has been criticized for the post, which appears to endorse the Great Replacement Theory. It is a racist trope that elites are conspiring to advance the numbers and influence of non-white people at the expense of white people, and it has been cited by perpetrators of shootings and other instances of racist violence in recent years. Michigan's Department of Environment, Great Lakes, and Energy announced plans to implement new protections against lead in school drinking water. Last October, Governor Gretchen Whitmer signed the first filter legislation. That bipartisan measure sends $50 million in funding and other resources to install lead-reducing water stations at schools and child care facilities throughout the state of Michigan. Schools also have to develop a drinking water management plan, install filters on all drinking water fixtures, and test filtered water annually. Child care centers must also follow these guidelines, but they only need to test their water once every two years. And hey, good news for bears. Michigan's bear population is on the rise. The Department of Natural Resources says the population increased 21% in the UP, 55% in the northern lower peninsula. That's all since 2012. Michigan has about 12,000 bears, and most of them are in the UP. That's it for the lowdown this week. We had contributions from Izzy Ross, Ellie Katz, Michael Livingston, and Steve Carmody at Michigan Public. Music is by Blue Dot Sessions. Our producer is Max Copeland. I'm Ed Ronco. We make this podcast at Interlochen Public Radio. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. Wow. Thank you for having me <laughs> yeah. so early. Come on in. Don't be scared if you see a little chipmunk around around here. Or ground squirrel. He's got it somehow. Trying to chase him out all since I got here. He's an elusive little guy. <laughs> no worries. Hi, I'm Keith Brown, and this week on Gameplay, we'll explore the music of Undertale. 
Toby Fox's eclectic score brings to life a funny and moving story with a memorable cast of characters. We'll hear the original score, plus arrangements for solo piano, orchestra, and more. The music of Undertale, this week on Gameplay. Join me. You can stream full episodes of Gameplay on demand and view playlists at GameplayShow.org.